All righty, everyone. Welcome back. This is Tavis Killian on behalf of Rare Petro, bringing you an episode of Monday Madness on September 20th, 2021. We've got lots to talk about today in the world of policymaking and looking towards the future. We'll be policing it. What role do the oil companies play? And can they refuse to take part in the energy transition? All of this and more later on in the podcast. And I, for one, am excited as geopolitical factors are some of my favorites to analyze. I've been gabbing long enough, so let's move right into our statistics. WTI prices skyrocketed last Wednesday up to $73 before making a quick retreat back into $72 territory. The prices held steady at $72 before taking another dip to $70 early this morning. At the time of writing this script, the price was $70.76. To me, this is phenomenal news, because in previous weeks, we would rarely spend this much time over $70, and the price actually bounced off of the $70 point when it tried to drop below. Sure, nothing is certain, but I am confident that this week has a much better chance at staying above $70 and perhaps pushing it into higher prices. But when one ceiling is smashed, we see another established, this time in the case of natural gas. It peaked last Wednesday at $5.46 and is currently at $5.125. Any huge run-up in price is guaranteed to encounter resistance, and I think the $5.5 point is a big barrier to break through. Still, if you listened to last week's episode, you know of the many reasons why Rare Petro and a lot of the world believes natural gas prices will continue to climb through 2021. If you didn't hear last week's episode, scroll back in the feed of whatever app you're listening through and you should find it can find us pretty much anywhere at this point. The biggest event that could really shock prices this week is the Federal Reserve's meeting. After some discussion, they should be announcing whether or not the central bank will be tapering its monthly asset purchase and reevaluate the stimulus policy. This decision will indirectly affect oil prices as it should have some immediate impact on the value of the dollar. Hold tight and keep an eye out for that. Enough about commodity prices, we have rig counts to analyze. According to the BSEE's latest report, Zero rigs in the Gulf of Mexico remain evacuated, and only 7% of the platforms are. I predict that everyone will be back out and working by the end of this week, but we still see 23% of oil production for the Gulf shut in, along with 34% of gas production. If we expand the scope to include onshore operations, we see a 9-rig increase in the U.S., and our friends in Canada did really well, also, with an 11-rig increase. The Permian is back to its regularly scheduled program of putting up big numbers on the board, as it adds five more rigs to its massive total of 259. Comparatively massive when we look at numbers from 2020, that is. The next best was the Eagleford, which added two to its total. The Marcellus and Canna Woodford were responsible for one new rig each, while the Haynesville lost itself one. State by state, Texas emerged as the winner with a net change of four more rigs than last week. Oklahoma followed closely with three, which is very significant change percentage-wise, as they only had 32 rigs before. Of the 9-rig net increase, 10 rigs will be focusing on oil commodities and one fewer rig targeting gas, strangely enough. Nothing incredibly difficult to grasp here, minus the fact that there is less focus on drilling gas wells despite the increased commodity prices. Perhaps companies are bullish on oil as they see it as undervalued. Well, only time will tell. Lastly, the inventory report, which you may have already read on our Thirsty Thursday weekly newsletter where we kick back with drinks and data. If you miss it, here's a quick recap. Refineries are restarting but idling as they wait to receive crude deliveries. It seems that this played a significant part in affecting inventory levels as the EIA predicted a 3.5 million barrel drawdown, which is a bit higher than previous week's predictions. The actual result was a 6.4 million barrel drawdown. 
The API also predicted a higher than usual 3.9 million barrel drawdown. Their actual numbers revealed that they too undershot the actual 5.4 million barrel drawdown. It is possible that refineries will continue to not receive crude for quite some time, further restraining the supply of other petrochemicals. Either way, this continues 2021's general trend of drawdowns. While high commodity prices and energy may benefit folks like you and me, China is busy looking for economic opportunities. They will be auctioning off 7.38 million barrels of their own crude. While lots of people will point out that, hey, this is an attempt to suppress commodity prices, well, we're a little bit skeptical. Remember, China spent most of 2020 buying record amounts of hydrocarbons, and that's just the stuff that we knew. Sure, they used lots of these materials to assist in the construction of many new coal facilities and other infrastructure, but it is doubtful that they have a shortage of oil. This is just a classic buy low, sell high scenario. While the rest of the world celebrated the death of oil and gas in 2020 and pushed for renewable tech, China understood the commodity was undervalued and bought as much as it could. Now for gasoline. We most recently witnessed a 1.9 million barrel drawdown, further threatening a continued shortage. All it takes is a drawdown of a half million barrels, and the record low trend will hold. So keep an eye out for those reports later this week, or better yet, join us on Thursday for the next Thirsty Thursday report from Rare Petro. I believe that sums up all of the statistics, so it is now time to get into the news stories that I promised at the beginning. You may have heard already, but Chevron is making the rounds in the news due to comments from the CEO. In an interview with CNBC, Chevron's Mike Wirth said that solar and wind projects generate low financial returns for company shareholders. He'd rather stick to oil and gas projects and let investors take the dividends that they earn and spend it on renewable projects as they please. This doesn't mean that the company has no ESG initiatives, as they ended up tripling investments in renewable fuels, hydrogen, and carbon capture. According to Jeff Gustavson, the president of Chevron New Energies, who I believe was the ex vice president or even president of their shale operations, he said that they targeted these projects as it supports airlines, transport communities, and industrial producers who are not going to be so easily electrified. Because, I mean, at this point, we're still a ways out from electric freight trucks, electric planes, and electric tankers. So that is definitely a significant offset. These comments rock the boat, and I'm not quite sure why. To me, it seems like Chevron is putting its shareholders before activists. If the shareholders truly believe their money is better serviced elsewhere, they can take their dividends, or better yet, all of their shares, and put it towards renewable energy companies or projects themselves. Regardless of how righteous it may or may not be, look at the economics. Wind and solar initiatives require a massive amount of capital, and just don't see the ROI that they already witnessed with hydrocarbons. After all, it is not Chevron's responsibility to invest in renewables, that's what the free market is for. To me, it seems like it would be a far better idea to let the rest of the world, specifically Shell and BP, dump all their money into wind and solar projects and pioneer the new technologies. Once these practices become not only affordable and profitable, but widespread, Chevron could simply purchase those companies and work them into their portfolio, it saves them from the trial, error, and headache of pioneering new fronts while simultaneously preserving and maximizing their cash flow. This whole situation is of particular interest to me because it comes off as a chess move Disguised as a simple PR comment, if people truly believe that the oil and gas industry will be phased out in our lifetimes, either by declining reserves or lack of investment, then they should have no problem with Chevron's stance. In that scenario, oil will become less and less valuable or obsolete, and Chevron will have no choice but to close its doors. That's what the people want, right? If they're wrong, then Chevron is positioned to continue to produce oil and gas and make cash returns 
for their investors, which is the primary goal for many public companies. Sticking to what you know and doing what you do best is such a simple and effective way to go about this situation, so hats off to Chevron. That one got a little bit long-winded, so I'll try to get this next story wrapped up just a bit faster. The UN is having its annual climate change conference in Glasgow starting November 1st. The conference allows world leaders to come together and discuss policies and practices that are imperative for limiting greenhouse gas emissions. This is the 26th of the COP conferences and will require everyone to redefine their efforts for climate change to reach all of our goals through 2050-ish. You would think that oil companies would be welcome to the event, especially the aforementioned Shell and BP who are doing their best to incorporate these technologies, but there is a catch. You know how roller coasters have a you-must-be-this-tall-to-ride sign? At this conference, it's really a you-must-have-science-based plans for how you will reduce carbon emissions to ride sign. Shell and BP somehow didn't reach this benchmark, despite being leading supermajors in the green tech space. A UN-backed third party judges whether your emissions reduction plan is credible and will tell you whether or not you make it into the conference. These two companies did not make the cut. Executives will still plan to attend the conference individually, but it seems the company entities will not be allowed to make their presence at the event known as, according to an event spokesperson, quote, the COP26 presidency is working most closely with organizations that are committed to taking real positive action and have strong climate credentials, end quote. This all seems a little bit backward to me. You have two entities who are arguably leading the charge towards becoming integrated energy companies, yet they are not allowed to attend one of the most prestigious climate panels. That is definitely COP26 sending a message, or more specifically, the UN sending a message. It's almost disheartening, really. These companies broke their backs to redefine their goals to conform with something that they did feel was important for them and their shareholders, yet the rest of the community turned their noses up and claimed their efforts weren't good enough. Again, think of Chevron. They're staying in their own lane, providing energy to people who consume it, and trying to keep their nose out of anyone else's business. It's almost as if they knew that they were damned if they did and damned if they didn't while letting BP and Shell blindly attempt to please these biased entities that want to see their downfall. Ooh, there, that got a little heavy and maybe too speculative, but it sure makes you think. That is the goal of this podcast, after all. We want to provide the news and enough perspectives that allow you to draw your own conclusions. If you disagree with any of the statements made on this podcast, we encourage you to reach out by emailing podcast at rarepetro.com. Who knows, your argument just might be featured in a future episode. Otherwise, you can go to www.rarepetro.com to find plenty of other content sure to keep you entertained and educated. Thank you once again for joining us, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 